Hello, everybody. Welcome to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. This is Dr. Dante, and today's going to be a little bit different. Uh, Dr. James couldn't be here today, although he would love to. He's trusting me to do the interview episode today, so let's hope I don't mess this up. We have a, a new guest today. This is Dr. Elizabeth Bayakina. She is one of our third-year residents in the Combined Family Medicine Osteopathic Neuromuscular Medicine program. If you guys remember, way back in season one, we actually had another resident from this program, Dr. Mindy Hansen, who shared her particular expertise about exercise prescription and her work as an athletic trainer. Uh, we wanted to bring Dr. Bayakina here today for a similar purpose because not only is she a physician, she is also uh, very deep in yoga as far as her own practice and how she uses that for her patients. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's have fun with this. I figured yoga is a very broad and interesting and strange concept, especially in the West. I figured we can open the floor with a pretty straightforward, loaded question. Dr. Yakina, what is yoga? Yoga. So um, yoga means to yoke or to connect. Uh, I think um, the way that it is passed down to us in the yoga sutras of uh, by Patanjali are uh, probably a good place to start. Okay. Um, so it describes an eight-limbed path of yoga. Um, the, it talks about the yamas and niyamas, which are internal and external observances. So uh, being truthful, being honest, ahimsa, if you think about Gandhi and nonviolent resistance, that's probably a good way to conceptualize that. Sure. Um, then uh, it moves into asana or physical practice, which is what we're probably most familiar with uh, in the Western world. What do you mean? Um, so the physical uh, practice or the posture. So uh, when you go to a yoga class, you usually think about um, maybe sitting in um, a, lo a lotus pose or uh, doing different standing postures or flowing from one pose to another. Um, but there are other aspects of yoga as well. Uh, so, for example, the, the breathing practices or pranayama. Okay. Uh, and then that moves forward through different stages to uh, meditation and then uh, gradually greater awareness of our internal self. So, that sounds like it's a lot broader than, obviously, it's just like you said, it's way broader than just the poses. Why is it that... The common image is typically just the poses then. What, how does one jump from all that just to the maneuvering and vice versa? How does, help, help me make um, that fit. I think because the poses can be pretty amazing. Um, and um, I know that uh, often yoga is associated with uh, flexibility and doing handstand and these um, you know, really interesting poses, but it doesn't have to be. It can be, if you can, basically if you can breathe, you can do yoga. Interesting. And um, so context, I've actually referred some of my patients over to, to her, uh, maybe like three or four in the past two months, specifically yeah, because that. yeah, Thank and you. It, it's both of our jobs, right? But one of the big things that happened was with a lot of the osteopathic manipulation and the holistic thing that I try to do with my patients, sometimes I find that the thing that's holding them back, the thing that they need next, is a better way to connect with their mind, right? Mm -hmm. Or rather, the, the whole mind-body connection that we like to talk about, there's something missing there, and then I'll send them over to you, and then you help them. 
I got into the habit of referring patients to you specifically for breathing practice for pranayama, but my understanding of that is relatively simple. So what do you do with, what do you do with our patients exactly? What do you teach them? So um, I guess let's talk about what pranayama means. So prana means energy, um, not energy like calories, for example, but prana like um, energy like vitality. So I had someone, for example, explain that to me as um, a, a teacher. Um, if you look at the bars on your cell phone, you want those bars to go up. So okay. you want higher vitality. And the breath uh, is that connection to that, that energy, the connection between our physical body and our mind. So that, that makes a lot of you know, sense in the context about what you're talking about with those patients. Um, there are different uh, breath practices, and those can be tailored to the individual and what they might need. Um, so for example, um, you had referred someone to me uh, with dysautonomia and um, uh, digestive issues. Sure. So we might work on a practice that, um, that allows them to um, um, on, for example, br uh, breath ratios um, and um, allowing the body to, um, I guess I'm getting a little bit lost, but. No, it's fine. It's one of the things that's really rough about this particular conversation is the yoga thing, and I emphasize the yoga thing as opposed to yoga like as a singular word, it's such a broad concept that we're trying to encompass into a narrow idea. When I say that I refer a patient to you for, you know, how to breathe good. Mm -hmm. It's obviously not just that. So how about this? Let's focus on what do you, what is the expected benefit from them learning how to work with you? Um, it depends on what is particularly going on, but generally uh, it might be a greater awareness of their breath patterns. Okay. Um, they might develop a greater breath capacity um, depending on what is going on uh, with uh, them mentally, uh, it can be calming. Um, if they're, they have a more depressed state, you can focus on breath that might elevate their energy more. Um, and that's, that's actually mm -hmm. an interesting one. And until I started working with you, I didn't really know to use breath to increase energy. I've always thought of it as the, I need to control the parasympathetics. I need to kind of get the body to calm down. Let me have these people run like some deep, slow breathing drills. Mm -hmm. But then we start talking and you can use it to, to activate. Correct. That's new to me. Can you um, just, that sounds yes. dope, elaborate on it, please. Yes. So if you think about the autonomic nervous system, if you're in a more sympathetic state, you tend to breathe faster, right? Okay. Uh, your heart rate goes up, you breathe more quickly, more kind of in the chest. Um, and then in more of a parasympathetic, like rest and digest state, you're taking deeper breaths more into your belly. So depending on what you, you might need with a particular breath practice, it might be that a person needs something that's more awakening or more stimulating as opposed to more uh, quieting and calming. And how would, that, how would that look different in practice? How would you use the breath to actually cause that activation or um, if you want it the other way around to cause that calming effect? What is it about the breath that lets that happen? happen? Yeah, because that's, that's pretty cool, weird stuff. Yeah. I breathe different and now my mood changes. You gotta right. have something to explore there. There is. So um, for example, 
um, it, de it depends on the breath that you're using. So a common breath you might uh, uh, encounter if you go to vinyasa flow class is called ujjayi breath. Okay. So it is considered both energizing and focusing, and at the same time it can be calming in that way because it's focusing. Um, so um, uh, to demonstrate it. Sure, go for it. Um, if you think about inhaling through your nose and then exhaling through your mouth like you're fogging up a pane of glass. And then inhale through your nose. And then keep your mouth closed and then gently constrict your, uh, your larynx. So it's also called the ocean breath. Um, some people call it the Darth Vader breath. Asthmatic, clearly. Yes, so, um, so it sounds like this. So you can use it throughout a practice, um, linking each uh, breath to your movement to focus your practice and allow you to pay attention to each pose and gain more awareness. Or you can do it standing in line at the grocery store uh, so you can stay calm and while waiting, while waiting to check out. That makes sense. Yes. And it's, it's cool that you mentioned that specifically as a, as a calming, almost like a zeroing in type of breath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's, um, in a completely different set of disciplines, it sounds very different in this context, but there's, um, there's this military guy, David, Gro uh, Lieutenant David Grossman. I don't know if we've talked about him much together during our didactics or anything of the sort. I don't think so. Fair enough, essentially. Um, so Lieutenant David Grossman, he's a uh, military guy who's dedicated much of his career specifically to um, applying psychological practices and principles to helping are soldiers, both active and veterans, right? Mm -hmm. So like, all right, here's a bunch of folks with PTSD. What's, what's happening here? Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of folks who need to learn how to fight and train better. What's happening here? Um, he is trying to develop this thing, uh, like a science of combatives is really what he's, uh, that's his career thing. It's a uh, combat sciences, right? Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how he developed a breathing pattern specifically for that type of zeroing in phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And having never heard you do that before, it actually sounds more or less like the same damn thing, which is really cool. Interesting. The idea was, um, look, if all hell is breaking loose and if things are going down in a really bad way, then you need to be able to zero yourself back in in the midst of all that chaos and then get back operational. Mm -hmm. So what he trains them for is what he calls it a tact uh, tactical breathing. Mm -hmm. And what he has them do, it's, he has them breathe in for a four count through the nose, through the, through the nostrils, right? Breathe in through the nose, four counts, hold that breath for four, release through the mouth for four, hold for four, repeat that for a couple cycles, just enough to get everything back regulated, mm -hmm. get out of that crazy, like, frazzled zone, mm -hmm. and then get back to work because, you know, there's significant things on the line. And he knows that as a, as a, uh, as a combat technique. That's a zero yourself in so you're ready to go. Mm -hmm. And then you're telling me that this is a way to stay calm basically yes to and focus really cool. mm -hmm, to focus and energize at the same time and in that way it, the calming in a focusing sense but that's interesting that you say that um that he 
he talks about four different parts of the breath, it sounds like. So yeah. inhale. So in yoga, likewise, there are four parts of the breath. There's the inhale, and there's a pause at the top. You exhale, and there's a pause at the bottom. So it's like a circle, continuous circle throughout your life that accompanies you. Interesting. Um, and there is also in, in yoga something called ratio breathing. So I wonder if there might be some connection to what, what he is doing to yoga. I mean, he admitted his sources. He says he learned, and this is going to sound ridiculous because we went from calming down from the grocery to here's how to fight better. Mm -hmm. he, um, he admitted in his book, it was um, On Combat, mm -hmm. that the place, or rather the, the literature where he developed the tactical breathing was actually Lama's breathing, Lama's training. Ah. So pregnant ladies in pain, freaking out, about to deliver a kid, how do you zero them in uh -huh. to calm down? And he's watching um, women and, their, uh, and the fathers practicing this together so they can get through the delivery. Mm -hmm. And then, for some, I, look, I don't know what went through the guy's mind. He went, maybe I should try this with people with a firearm. And all of a sudden, they're shooting better. They're staying on point. They're staying focused. They're getting out of that tunnel vision zone that happens when stress hits these insane places. Mm -hmm. But he was, very, uh, he was very clear about saying, yeah, I picked it up from Lamaz. Well, that makes me think, where, I wonder where Lamaz comes from. I have no idea. Don't either. But we'll, maybe we'll find out and look, put in the show notes or something. But the history of that goes into Lamaz. But then the question is, where does Lamaz get it? Because I don't necessarily know a lot of Western disciplines that put so much attention on the breath as compared to a lot of the um, Eastern traditions, yoga, some of the martial arts things that I'm familiar with and so on and so forth. I've, outside of Lamaze, literally, and now this tactical breathing thing with Grossman, I've never seen mm -hmm. such dedicated focus on the thing that should be happening automatically, which I guess they take it for granted. We take it for granted. We train the breath, clearly. Yes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that evolves out of that topic, so hooray, this is the yoga episode, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about yoga, and then we spent a good amount of time talking about breathing. We actually spent most of the segment talking basically mm -hmm. about breath patterns. We haven't talked about the poses as much. Um, partially that's because a lot of people know, and when, you know, when I say the word yoga, they visualize warrior one, tree pose, things of that nature, right? Yes. Uh -huh. um, everybody knows downward dog for some reason. However, this word clearly isn't just that. So... Why is this word so dang com so complicated? Um, the word yoga or asana? Um, let's go with yoga. Yoga. Um, I think it's complicated maybe because life is complicated and um, yoga asks us to integrate and connect um, our life and maybe become m more self-aware. Okay, so let's, let's have fun with this idea because one of the things I really want to walk away uh, from here with is, is like a cleaner picture of it. Mm -hmm. And there are words out there that are so packed, that are so loaded, yes. that there's no way to just capture it in like a definition. Like if I say, what is a book? A book is a, ta-da, give the mm -hmm. definition, move on to life. However, this word is one of those weird words that is, extremely loaded. People have explored this word, right? It's complicated enough in its native language. Then you put it into English where we have to have all this cultural context reloaded into this language and then go from there. Yes, and understand it in our, from our cultural perspective and how it applies. 
right. to, to life now. Right, like those uh, folks who think mm -hmm. yoga is a religion. Right, so certainly it developed in a certain cultural context in India, in the context of hin uh, Hindu, uh, Hindu religion, but it's, it's not a religion. Uh, it is certainly a philosophy. Um, and it allows us, uh, it's one that allows us to connect and um, be better physically, emotionally, and mentally. Okay, and that makes sense. So let's play with this. Um, yoga is supposed to be a philosophy. We could work with that. Yoga is an extremely um, broadly encompassing, potentially all-encompassing term. Let's play with getting a clean definition by dancing around it, kind of in a like a circumambulating sense. Let's play with mm -hmm. the negative. What would yoga not be? Not be. So yoga may be a state of disconnectedness. That's, you know, yoga means to connect. So the opposite would to be not connected, to be unwell. Um, um, I think those would probably be good words, Un unhealthy, unwell. Okay. And then with the various acts, you mentioned that within yoga there's the, uh, the asanas, the, the postures, there's the breathing, there's the, the meditation. What's, what's the, 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 the application? What is the point of doing yoga? It's the point? Um, I think that can be an, something individual. I think um, in the way that historically it arose uh, was to maybe reach a state of transcendence. Uh, for us, that might be understanding that in terms of self-realization or uh, when you step off of the yoga mat to be a better person, to be more self-aware of your particular patterns and habits. They're called samskaras in okay. yoga. Um, and to maybe develop better and healthier patterns of being. So would this be, is this an internal process, an external thing? So that's a good question. So uh, yoga is a balance of internal, external. It's a balance of effort and ease. Uh, Stirasukha asana is something that's contained in the yoga sutras by, of Patanjali. Okay. Um, and uh, which to summarize, the yoga sutras are very terse um, uh, aphorism. They're aphorisms that were passed down to us by Patanjali. Uh, and we're meant to, you were saying yoga is very dense and we kind of need to dance around this word in a circular kind of way maybe. Um, but um, these aphorisms um, uh, were meant to be studied with a teacher who could expand upon uh, what, uh, what yoga is and what it means and how to practice it. Um, uh, the term sutra itself means thread. Or suture. Suture, that is the same root word, yes. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah. That, that's super cool. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if that's what it's to do, so yoga is not the state of being disconnected, yoga then should be a state of being connected. The act of a yoga, the act of practicing yoga would be the process of increasing connectivity. That sounds extremely IT-ish. That's, mm -hmm. we're talking about integration there. We're talking about self-realization, as you mentioned, self-actualization. That is, um, I know of a, two other disciplines in a Western context that mess with that idea mm -hmm. very richly. And it makes a lot of sense now that they actually fall back on a lot of the 
Eastern, uh, specifically Chinese, um, Indian uh, literatures to explore their thoughts. There's, um, there was a psychiatrist once upon a time named Carl Jung, mm -hmm. and he explored very deeply uh, the collective unconscious. He explored and kind of evolved this idea of there's your conscious brain, there's your not quite conscious brain, not quite um, unconscious. It's those other systems inside you that make up you. Yes. Which is different to say that it's like sub you because there's this idea that, okay, there's my conscious me, then there's all this stuff underneath and like I'm this guy, I'm the guy who's up top. Mm -hmm. And then there's a way to flip that where it's no, no, all of that is you. The part of you that's rage, the part of you that's happiness, hunger, lust, consciousness, and all that stuff, your emotions and your cognition and your body are all actually you. And then he spent a lot of his career exploring that idea. And again, he refers back to a lot of some of the esoteric works from the yoga disciplines. There's another guy from a more modern context, uh, Stephen Kotler, I believe is his name. He's uh, one of the positive psychology guys, if that's a word you've ever encountered. But yeah. basically, he, um, he's been formally studying flow state psychology which is this really wild discipline that evolved um, the past several years where we found out that if you do certain death-defying sports, mm -hmm. you approach this strange state of oneness and bliss and ecstasy. And it was such a weird, unique phenomenon that the guy made his whole career learning what the heck is going on, what's happening here, how do people do it? And then he finds out that, hold up, yogis do this. Mm -hmm. And then yogis do this through meditation. They do it um, through whatever the heck they do because he didn't have a good understanding of what they do. He just knows that they did it. And then all of a sudden he's like, but why are these adrenaline junkies getting into the same state as these yogis? Right. And then he asks them what they're doing. And when you interview these adrenaline guys, they're frighteningly, shockingly, maybe calm is the best word, mm -hmm. when they're not in the middle of their death-defying stunts. It's, it's interesting. So maybe it's integration is the best word. To do yoga, to practice yoga is to integrate? I think that's a good way to, to put it. Okay. Um, I think in terms of under, uh, like in terms of like these different layers or aspects of ourselves, um, you can look at um, the kosha model in yoga, which was um, described by a um, monk in the 15th century. Um, and it talks about um, kind of similarly to the young model, model in the way you were describing, um, there's a physical self, uh, and then internal to that, there's our energetic uh, self, then mental, emotional, uh, that part of us that has wisdom and intellect, and then right at the center, connecting to this, um, uh, adre these adrenaline junkies that you're talking about. Yeah, we don't um, mean that as in a derogatory fashion. No, not, just, not that's what at they all. call themselves. Yes. Um, <laughs> is bliss or our maybe natural state of self and joy. Right. They talked about, um, speaking specifically to the flow state guys, the adrenaline guys, there was this consistent report that through their very, very skilled, focused, practiced physical activity, they almost felt like uh, dissolution, maybe the word. They felt one with the universe was the phrasing, mm -hmm. almost in a frightening sense, like they felt Ego death is what they're describing, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. But it was a happy event. It was ego death into bliss. And I'm like, that sounds... 
something that, akin that sounds to amazing. yoga. Yeah. It, just, it just sounds amazing. I don't know anything else outside of, again, meditation and things of that sort that can produce such a phenomenon outside of this. But So yoga is the pursuit of that. You could, yes, and then certainly depending on um, who you're working with, they might have particular goals in mind. It might be, you know, I want, when someone first walks into a yoga class, they might be, you know, well, I want to be more physically fit. Okay. Um, or then, you know, it might be someone um, just wants to be more relaxed or calm. Um, maybe it's, um, you know, someone later in life wants to focus on um, meditation and reflect on their life or um, to even some people will say prepare for dying. What do you mean? Um, so um, I guess coming back to the idea of uh, self-realization or understanding um, going through um, the physical practices to uh, prepare the bo body physically to sit uh, and then the, medit uh, the breathing practices to prepare the, the mind, and uh, ultimately uh, to sit and meditate and gain realization and understanding of um, whatever it might, self-realization or maybe towards the end of life of uh, what life is or what it means. That is frighteningly profound if that's what people pursue. It, it can be. Yeah. So in the modern sense, it can be simply, um, you can think of meditation, for example, like flossing your teeth. Like, um, you know, it's something that you do every day to keep, uh, keep your teeth healthy. Meditation is something that you might do every day simply to get rid of the extra stuff, uh, you know, you have wandering around in your head and keeps, you know, cycling through and um, that you just need to quiet down. And that might be it. Right. That actually... It cleans up the word, but it's introducing this other feature into it. If, if yoga is not the state of being disconnected, but it's the pursuit of that connection, and that connection is blissful and integrated, when you comment on that as the thing you do to prepare for the day and get all the mess out of your head, there's this idea that it's also, it would also be what makes you present. Yes. Is that accurate? Is that? Yes. So yeah, to be uh, to be present to what is um, going on, to uh, be uh, act, uh, doing what you are uh, doing, whatever it might be, with uh, a state of contentment, uh, to not look to the uh, results of your actions, but the actual act of doing them. That gets into some of the yamas and niyamas um, of uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. You want to you touch on that real quick? Sure. They're internal and external observances. So probably what people might be most familiar with would be uh, with, um, um, for example, Gandhi's nonviolent resistance in the term ahimsa or non-harm. Sure. Um, and um, um, other, other concepts might be, uh, like I said, to be content, um, not, uh, not stealing, things like that. So just wanted to share a fun fact. Um, the uh, Krishnamacharya, uh, who's considered the founder of Hatha Yoga in the West, um, studied with a teacher in the Himalayas for 
almost eight years and through that was encouraged to spread yoga and use it for uh, healing the sick. Uh, when he returned to South India, he studied Ayurveda, which is considered a traditional system of healing uh, and medicine in India and also considered the sister science of yoga uh, and later passed that knowledge on to multiple students who brought it to the West, including his son Desikachar, one of whose students was Gary Craftso, who um, is, uh, teaches in the United States and was my teacher's teacher. So let's change gears just a little bit. Okay. We talked a fair bit about what yoga is, which is, again, in and of itself a very, look, we could spend an entire show, multiple shows. We can make an, a, probably a brand new show just trying to explore this word because of how much is in it. Yes, and there are multiple, multiple commentaries just on Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, so. Exactly. Yes. So let's, let's try to rein this back into some more familiar turf. Part of the reason that I wanted to talk about yoga with you today was because it is a pretty significant part of how we actually have our practice with our patients, right? We both do the neuromuscular thing, we're both osteopaths. At some point, the manipulation isn't enough. The manipulation gets the body to where it belongs, mm -hmm. but if the movement practice, or rather if the movement patterns for our patient is aberrant and we're trying to put a part back, sometimes a part is just out because it's out. Like, oh, I fell, the rib is out, help me put it back in. But for these chronic things, the, the upper cross syndromes, the lower crosses, the asthmas, the COPDs and things like that, there's, um, there's a responsibility for our patients to, to move. And sometimes that movement is gonna be, you know, really cool martial arts, powerlifting, weightlifting, going for a jog. Sometimes it's yoga, sometimes it's calisthenics. There's a whole slew of options there. But more often than not, I prescribe some version of yoga. Mm -hmm. And that's not coincidental, there's a reason. I figure, let's have some fun with this. Let's bridge back osteopathy and yoga. Sounds like a plan? Yes. Cool. So. One of the things I want to play with with you, once upon a time, A.T. still wrote about this idea about biogen, right? Mm -hmm. There's this idea that sometimes the pathology, the problems at the level of the anatomy, mm -hmm. and by anatomy, he'll mean everything down from the cellular structure all the way up into the movement pattern. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes the problem is at a broader level. Sometimes the problem isn't, oh, the rib is out of place or that femur is just a bit off. It's, no, the way this guy lives his life is why that happens. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So if yoga is the pursuit of oneness or that integration, that, that better way of being, it makes sense that we use it almost as a way of healing, as a holistic way of mm -hmm. healing. Yes, and the coming back to the yoga sutras, it, they say that one of the things that gets in the way of pursuing yoga is illness. Right, and that, that's actually, um, that brings up a really cool idea here. Health, so health and disease, very linked terms obviously. This self-actualization thing, the pursuit of yoga, or rather the thing that yoga pursues, the goal isn't necessary to be healthy, right? But health is Something one of the things that Something you need on happens. the way, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how, do, how does one 
alleviate illness through yoga? How does that work? How does that, um, like at the at the day-to-day -day level, what what has to be done? How does this run? Um, well, it depends on the individual. So. Um, for example, uh, yoga therapy, which is actually a relatively new concept in, um, in yoga history. So for example, the um, International Association of Yoga Therapists formed in, I believe it was 1989. Um, and then yoga therapy explicitly is not necessarily mentioned historically, as far as I'm aware. Um, but we understand that um, teachers, for, for example, Krishnamacharya, um, um, w could apply it to individuals based on their needs and their specific health issues. How so? Like, what, what would that look like? Um, again, that would depend. It's kind of like in osteopathy, we have a set of tools, so we have different techniques that we can apply. Uh, in yoga, that might be a particular yoga asana or pose. It might be a breath practice. Uh, it might be uh, something that you meditate on. Uh, it might be, um, you know, that it, it might be good for you to go volunteer somewhere or um, to serve in some way. Okay. So let's, let's play with that. I know we talk a lot about uh, the various back pains and postural syndromes. Mm -hmm. let's, let's rehash an idea from one of the other pathologies out there. So what about somebody with a breathing problem? Let's say I got somebody with asthma. Let's, let's create a patient, so just to, just to work off of. Let's say more or less healthy. We're not going to add too many complications here. Somebody in their mid to late 20s, uh, make it male just because I got to pick a gender at some point. And then let's say this person has asthma. They would like to do something physical so that they're less dependent on their medication. Mm -hmm. Is there a role, is there a way that a yoga practice or what kind of yoga practice would facilitate that goal. Mm. I want to mm -hmm. be in a position where I do not need my, I don't know, my Simba cord as much as I would otherwise. How would that look? Right. Um, so I'd like to preface, I'm not a yoga therapist. I am a yoga teacher, but not a therapist. Um, but if I were to approach that issue, I would say you would want to focus on poses that opened up the chest and the rib cage, okay. um, that strengthened the lung capacity um, you might give particular breath practices that would um, allow the, um, you know, a person to expand their lung capacity and also to maybe um, uh, stay calm. So not being able to breathe is something scary, it can make you anxious. So uh, probably addressing some of those issues. So would that be, I guess, a series of a couple appropriate po uh, postures, poses? Mm -hmm. and by virtue of what you're saying about the not being too frightened by the, by the breathing, by the issue, that'll be a very clear, here's a handful of poses that help with the mechanics of what asthma is, mm -hmm. and then here's the breathing drills to actually facilitate not panicking during the breath, since, look, I've, I have asthma for the record. Yes, so uh, I when think... When you lose air, it's frightening. Mm -hmm. So would that be how that would run? I guess po postures, pranayama? Uh, I, that's how I, I would approach, approach it. Okay. Um, um, what kind of, and, and I'm asking partially because, hey, I'm also, I, I actually have asthma, mm -hmm. but I tend to control it with a breath practice. This is going to become redundant for a second, but Please. I would never think about a posture to help with that. What kind of, 
what asanas, what yoga poses would help with that? So I would say um, side bending poses that would open up the ribs, okay. the rib cage. Uh, I would think also some back bending poses that would open up the chest as well. Um, maybe focusing more on standing poses um, to uh, strengthen. Um, and then maybe also including some poses that are forward folding to uh, as kind of as a counter pose uh, to some of that. What do you mean counter pose? That's a, that's a new concept now. So um, there, if, um, so if you think about a pose, so if I did a strong back bend afterward, I would probably, as a counter pose, I want to do something that would strengthen and stabilize my core. Okay. Um, for example, so likewise, if you did something that was uh, strongly forward folding, you might want to do something that was the opposite and open up your chest a little bit. It's cool that you mentioned, is that, is that a standard, is that a normally understood part of developing a yoga sequence or is that? It's part of sequencing and I think, um, and there is a lot to sequencing, so I think if um, the audience is interested in that, taking a yoga teacher training and pursuing that would, would be a good way to go. Uh, but yes, um, um, pose and having a pose and counter pose, I, I think um, is, at least that's the way I was taught. Fair enough. So I say this because, and this is gonna sound very silly, but hey, I gotta be honest about it. My first actual exposure to yoga, mm -hmm. I kid you not, was P90X. Like that ah, old I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I've, I've gotten good results from it. Once upon a time, I was quite obese. I wasn't quite athletic. And look, I, I had to fix my body. Mm -hmm. And my first move into that world of let me make my body less insufficient was actually, yeah, Tony Horton with a bunch of weights shouting at me through a TV saying, you know, well, not dig deeper. That's the other guy. But it, it was beach body stuff. And I remember they had a yoga sequence as one of their videos. Mm -hmm. And it was... One, incredibly difficult. I never appreciated how hard it was until I actually started trying to do half of the stuff they did. Like, there's no reason looking at what a chair pose is. I'm like, there's no way in hell this is going to be worth training. And then I do it, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, this that's actually meaningful labor. But I never, I never knew there was a logic behind the sequences. Absolutely. I just kind of saw, like, here's a bunch of poses. Go mm -hmm. do them until the timer runs. Mm -hmm. So... I know we got to go broad because I'm not going to have a specific patient to work with, but what goes into picking these poses then? Like how does... So for example, like if broadly speaking, you yeah. might think about the time of day, um, the level of energy that patient is, is at at that particular time. So to keep it simple, in the morning, you might uh, want to start out more slowly and gently and then build up to prepare someone to be more energetic and prepared for the rest of their day. Okay. And then in the evening, you might do something that's the opposite, something that unwinds and allows someone to prepare for sleep. That makes sense. It's, um, yeah, I don't have much to add to that. It's more so, it's just a very cool, like I said, from my own experience, the idea of sequencing, when you, when you brought that up, that's extremely cool given uh, my training background uh, from a from a weightlifting mm -hmm. speci specifically like a like Russian kettlebell strong first style like here's a kettlebell do some stuff with it. Mm -hmm. I pay a lot of attention to the order of my training and how I set up all those things. But I've 
I just don't know many other training disciplines that do that. And then all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, when you do insert whichever pose, it needs these to one, warm up to it and two, back out of it. Coming from the bubble where I'm at, where I'm just kind of like, yeah, use this pose to warm up, get back to work. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very cool upgrade in sophistication. So nice. How, um, how have you used that with your patients? So, you, tell me some any, you have any good stories about that? Um, so let's see. I know this is the lady I referred you once upon a time. Yes, we could talk about her. So she had dysautonomia and um, uh, had some digestive issues, constipation. Um, so we focused with her on, she, uh, notably she already had a breath practice herself. Um, really? Yes, yes. It was, uh, it was very interesting to talk to her. Um, and so we um, added a breath to her uh, practice called Kapalabhati, which is a cleansing breath. It's also called a skull shining breath or breath of, breath of fire. You say skull shining? That, that's what it's called. It's supposed to be a cleansing breath. That, yes. That sounds incredibly metal. I just want to let you know <laughs> that it's, you have a very calm voice. Skull shining, breath of fire <laughs> in this, in this delivery is kind of, that threw me off a little bit. That's kind of cool. That's, that's what it's called. Hey, fair enough. Um, so it is a breath that, um, where you take, after you take an inhale, you forcefully draw in your abdomen and that draws your breath out. Uh, and you repeat that and it kind of activates your, I, I would say coming from an osteopathic standpoint, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it probably activates your celiac plexus. Uh, it also works the, the, the diaphragm uh, and then your ab abdominal musculature as well. Interesting. Which for her, uh, I think made sense uh, to activate that uh, because of the uh, dysautonomia and the uh, particular issues she had with con her connective tissues. Right. It's funny you mentioned that. So uh, a little bit of background context. I started taking care of this lady several months ago. She has her, um, basically she has a very hard to control bowel habit between diarrhea, constipation, everything in between. And for some reason, she gets meaningfully better when we do our um, osteopathic manipulation. Mm -hmm. And then when I talked to her, because I inherited her from, a, from another uh, pr uh, physician, she was commenting on how putting pressure on this one area seems to really help her. And I'm like, not sure where we're going with this yet. Let's see what happens. And as she starts to demonstrate what's worked for her in the past, she actually described, yeah, uh, ciliac ganglion work, mm -hmm. superior mm -hmm. and inferior mesenteric ganglion work. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, cool, fair enough. If that's what does you good, let's try that. So kept it very straightforward for that first visit. I engage that soft tissue and I go, all right, let's see how this goes find the barrier, release, hooray, good things happen. And I told her, like, if that's really what you got, maybe there has to be a way for you to engage it. I, mm -hmm. Look, I'm glad I sent her to you, obviously. No, thank you. So this, uh, the skull shining breath. Yes. The breath of fire breath, breath of fire breath. <laughs> um, given how that works, you're saying it may activate the ciliac ganglion. That would make sense anatomically. So how, yes. do, one more time, talk to me then. How does this breath run? Like what is, what is happening here? Oh dear, okay. So um, you take, I guess I could demonstrate. It sounds a little funny. Hey, it's, we touch people and they get better. So funny's for granted here. Okay, 
Okay, so you take a deep breath in, and on your exhale, you uh, uh, forcefully contract your abdomen. So it sounds like this. So uh, I'm not actively taking an exhale, but by drawing my abdomen in, that draws my breath out. Right. And because this is an audio feed, nobody can actually see what's happening here. When she's taking that large exhalation, that forceful exhalation, that her chest doesn't actually move much at all. I was noticing all, almost all of the maneuvering, all of the work was that rapid drawing in of the belly. It looks like your diaphragm was almost rising up. Mm -hmm. a little bit during that. Is that deliberate? Is that part of what's happening there? Um, yes, so you're actively drawing your abdomen in uh, and I guess up um, and that draws, which would make sense because you're uh, exhaling and your diaphragm would be lifting up, right? Right. Yes. yes so yes. Um, so that movement makes that you described makes sense um, and that draws your air out. Fair enough. This This calls back a broader idea. So what we do is manipulation, right? As far as the, as, at least within the osteopathic clinic, what we do is manual manipulation. And there's this message I try to convey to my patients that for every, look, if there's the thing I can do to you with, your, with my hands to get mm -hmm. you feeling well, there's got to be a way to translate that into something you could do on your own. Assuming you have parts to work with, like if, if for whatever reason, uh, you don't have use of your limbs and extremities and so on and so forth. You Maybe the sentence breathe. doesn't quite work. You can still breathe. You can still breathe. There you go. See, you make me eat my own words now, mm -hmm. which is the point. That's why we brought you here. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if there's a thing we can do with our hands and it works for you, that means that there's a manual solution. And if there's a manual solution, there ought to be a way to make that into something you can own yourself. For example, um, uh, speaking from how I practice with my patients, if there's a technique we do a lot, it's, a, it's one of our most common ones. We teach it to our first year med students, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the innominate work. So if the innominates, the, the pelvis, the hips are mm -hmm. anteriorly tilted, posteriorly tilted, inflared, outflared, and so on and so forth, there's a way we can position the hips, right? Mm -hmm. So that when they push against us and we resist, we can actually alter the angulation of that hip a little bit. We can tilt it forward, tilt it back, and all that good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then I tell my patients, like, look, if that move got you feeling 90% better, like, if that's where most of the benefit was, that means that, dude, I can teach you to do a drill that'll do 90% of what I just did to you. Mm -hmm. And hey, 90% of my 90%, that's math. That's math. But that takes you a far amount of the way. So, uh, for example, for me, it's like a, a prying goblet squat. If if the innominate muscle energy provides the vast majority of your relief, then I go, you know what? Prying goblet squat. That's probably the move that's going to work for you. Mm -hmm. There's a, and I, you know, I teach them how to do it in the office. They walk away with it. Hooray, good day. And then I don't see them for a while because, you know, they don't have to pay a copay if they know what to do on their own, right? Right. There's, um, there's another set of techniques, uh, the counterstrain techniques, right? Yes. How would that, because that's a very different way of treating a patient. The counterstrain techniques for just a very brief uh, review of it, what it amounts to is you position the body in such a way that the muscles, that the tissues that are very, very tight, get the chance to relax. In fact, you almost force them to relax. So you find a position of significant ease. Uh, you find a position where there's no pain. You leave them there for a while, and then the pain just kind of melts. In fact, 
when uh, the techniques were developed, it was a Jones counter strain, right? Yes. When Dr. Jones was first making the move, it was because he essentially didn't know what else to do. So he just kind of propped his patient up with a couple pillows, saw another patient, and it was like, you know what, I'm going to get back to you in a minute because I don't know what I'm doing right now. Finds a position of ease. Hey, you comfortable here? Yeah, cool. Took care of another one, did whatever he did, came back and was like, how are you doing? And he goes, I'm better. And then he refined that into his techniques. Yes. Um, that's a lot less active, obviously. Right. And I think um, there are different yoga practices. And you, I think they, in some ways, find parallel to some of our OMM techniques. So specifically, um, muscle energy, which in the physical therapy literature, that's called uh, proprio proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. Yes, and that technique specifically has been applied by uh, Dr. Ray Long, who is, I think, an orthopedic surgeon to yoga poses, and he has, a, I believe, a book on it. Oh. Um, yes. Um, and then... That's something to put in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're beautifully il illustrated as well. Um, and then in terms of counter-strain, I would probably parallel that to restorative yoga. What is that? What is that? So that is where kind of like Dr. Uh, Jones positioned his patient with pillows um, and left them. Uh, in restorative yoga, you use uh, props and bolsters and blankets to place the body in a position of ease and you just kind of stay there. Uh, and I would wonder if you might, uh, I would think you'd be able to apply that in a therapeutic way depending on what poses you use. That actually sounds like an almost one-to-one -one tra translation of the phenomenon. I, I really think there are some pr pretty close parallels between the two. Nice. Um, what, what I would like to figure out, though, and this is something to explore actively, I don't have an a priori thought process on this one, is what would be a good way to learn how to match these techniques to yoga? Let's say for a practitioner, for an osteopath like, mm -hmm. like us, right, with our skill sets. I don't know of an intuitive way to translate from one to the other, like when would, I don't know, warrior one yeah. be the move, you know? And that is the amazing part of yoga because part of that uh, depends on your intention. How do you so, mean? So for example, uh, warrior one, which is a standing posture where your front leg is bent, your back leg is, uh, you step back and press into your heel, your arms are up. So you might focus on the uh, opening of the chest in the pose. Okay. You might focus on the stretch to and stabilization it creates in the hips. Uh, you might focus on the grounding that it creates. You might uh, focus on the energy it creates um, uh, in the person. So part of where, where you, mm -mm, what pose you choose might depend on what you intend the application of that pose to be. And it can serve many purposes. Okay, that's fair. Let's have fun with this then. Let's, again, no idea where this one's going to go. So mm -hmm. what if, let's work with our most common scenario. We talked about asthma for a minute, right? Yes. What would be a nice, broadly applicable pose for the asthmatic? You mentioned side bending. What? Side bending pose. Um, let's see. Uh, this doesn't count as medical advice, by the way. Exactly, not not medical advice. I guess a rev, rev, uh, reverse warrior or exalted warrior. 
uh, which is when you are um, in um, one, your, uh, this, uh, one, the front knee is bent, okay. back leg, you step back and it's straight, okay. and then you lift the arm in front and bring it up overhead so it stretches to the side of your ribs. So make sure I'm mapping this correctly. So you do something similar to a lunge. Yes, um, c kind of, except you're kind of uh, facing towards the side or open-faced. Got um, it. So, okay. Um, yes. Okay. I, I can, for the record, this is what Google was for. So. Yes. Warrior, uh, exalted warrior. Exalted warrior. There you go. Yes. I can almost imagine it, but, so, true limitation. We have microphones on our shirts, mm -hmm. so... If we get out and start moving around too much, you're going to hear a lot of, like, basically cloth rubbing, and I like you enough that I don't want you to have to deal with that, so mm -hmm. you're welcome. Exalted Warrior, fair enough. What about, um, so, we're not going to do, oh, so. So, if you, that would be a standing pose. You could also do a, a side bending pose from seated, let's say. Okay. If you uh, wanted something that was, you know energetically a little bit like closer to the ground so like I said it really depends on what the person's needs are it makes sense the most common pose I've seen that everybody seems to know is like the uh, was it a downward facing dog right uh -huh. so when would that be the move what 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 is that good for because oh. I obviously see you know it helps your hamstring flexibility yes but outside that very limited application I have no idea what to use it for so a uh, downward facing dog, it stretches the whole backside of the body. Okay. Um, it stretches the, the feet, the bottoms of the feet. It strengthens the arms. It can prepare you for handstand practice, for example. Why would somebody want to do a handstand practice? Um, well, standing upside down changes your perspective. It uh, seems to have a positive effect on people's moods okay. for some reason. I I've didn't know that. I've experienced that. Um, um, and maybe, you know, maybe you wouldn't want to have someone do a handstand, you know. Fair enough. But if you did, you then might this is do one of the, the preparatory maneuvers. You, you could, yes. You could also uh, focus on the diaphragm and breathing in downward facing dog and uh, watching uh, and allowing the abdomen to draw up and back as you exhale and then inhale, the abdomen would come out um, uh, during your, uh, your inhale. Um, strengthens the shoulders. And, um, the, and then you mentioned you could use the breathing to intensify this, or to um, you could use the pranayama use, to... Yes, you could, well, you could focus on the breath from downward facing dog. Uh, and the... Uh, because you're, you're facing down, so it uh, is easier to draw the abdomen up and back. Because the gravity effect is reversed. Exactly. Kind of like the Marianne Clark drainage. Oh. In uh, OMT sort of effect. Elaborate. Okay, so Marianne Clark drainage might be used for um, digestive issues. I mean, what, what, what do you usually use it? Uh, pretty much visceral and digestive stuff so yes we're, we're tracking together so when you're in downward facing dog uh, when you exhale some of the viscera might and naturally with gravity it might also drop a uh, drop up and away from the uh, pelvic bowl okay so like I said there's a whole lot you could uh, you could depending on your focus and intention that you could 
um, that you could choose to do a particular pose. But what I'm taking away is by combination of these poses plus the breathing mechanic, you can actually, if nothing else, replicate a lot of the muscle energies, a lot of the counter strains potentially. And other stuff too. And based on what you're saying, the lymphatic work, we can actually... Absolutely. Isn't it interesting? The parallels are pretty amazing. Right. So, that, look, that's just pretty dope. I've mm. not much else to say other than that's pretty dope. Because, look, it's one thing to make a patient feel meaningfully better with our hands. It's another thing entirely to say, hey, you know what? Congratulations. I'm glad I got you better. However, if you do these things, the chances that you can say goodbye from here and not need my hands anymore or your hands is, you know, instead of being this chance, it's that chance. Do this practice and then you can say goodbye one day. Yeah, That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. You can do it yourself. How did you get into yoga? How did you stumble into this environment? Um, so I was 17 and I, let's see, I stopped doing ballet and I just drove, I graduated from high school and I just drove past this yoga studio and just decided to stop and took a yoga class and then one day I was talking to one of the front counter people and they gave me a coupon for yoga teacher training. I was like, oh, well, this, this sounds like a good idea. That is alarmingly convenient. <laughs> so the, the yoga, so you're a yoga instructor, right? Mm -hmm. how, long have you, sorry, um, how long have you been a yoga instructor, yoga teacher? So I haven't, so when I started medical school, I stopped teaching after my first year of medical school. And I, I do some workshops every once in a while, but it was too hard to maintain that schedule. Okay. Um, you did teach our, us as residents once upon a time. Yes, and that was a lot of fun. Um, I don't exactly recall when I first started teaching or what year, um, but it was, I, you know, was still working on a teacher, doing, completing my teacher training. I'd work, I moved to Fort Worth. Okay. And I ended up in this, um, little yoga studio that, uh, I'm going to say her name, Kimberly. Um, owned this uh, little studio in this uh, um, historic house that she converted into a studio. It was over a hundred years old, and she just um, mentored me and um, was there when I first, you know, taught. And um, she gave me my first class, and it kind of went from there. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And what kind of yoga th practice was that? Was that one of the more uh, like flow-based things, energetic things? Was it more of a a breath practice? Was it more of the restorative thing? Mm, I think because I'd been exposed to multiple things, I, depending on the class, I would uh, kind of change it up okay. depending on the, on the class and the students. Um, right now I do uh, practice more of like a flow-based, like um, vinyasa uh, type yoga. Vinyasa meaning you link, uh, it's a class where you link one pose to the uh, to the other with your breath. I was actually going to ask what that means. So, uh, I don't think that's exactly what vinyasa, the term vinyasa, means. But generally, it's a class where um, you uh, where you link, you move from pose to pose, and it's connected to your breath. That makes sense. And looping it back to those first ideas, so you. This is also to make sure I understand what's going on correctly, because this is foreign stuff to me at this level. You know what I mean? So with the flow yoga, with the vinyasa mm -hmm. uh, type of practice, you 
prepare the body, you develop your competence and skill with these various post postures. You learn how to breathe well in these postures, which helps soothe the mind because I can imagine being upside down, at least for me, is not exactly a fun place to be. It's, I'm really good at having my feet rooted on the ground. Someone sweeps the leg, I'm in a weird place, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So having both legs off the ground, upside down, that's like, that's foreign turf. Can be calming. I can imagine. I'm not sure if I'm one of the calm ones in that mm -hmm. environment. But um, the act of training to be calm in that environment must offer meaningful, meaningful benefit to the mind. You know what I mean? So you get the body right, you get the mind right. All of a sudden you can perform these functions better. You can move better. And it's weird because health, like it's a health show, right? This is a health podcast to some degree. Health is almost implied. It's woven into this idea. It's not like, oh, do this and you'll be healthy. It's mm -hmm. do this and you'll be good to go. The health is almost like par for the course. It's like, a, here's an airplane. By the way, you got some peanuts. The health here is the peanuts, which is different because for so many conversations, it's like, why do you do this? I got to be healthy. Mm -hmm. Cool. What for? Eh, for reasons and things. With this one, so much of the focus was on, like, what's your patient's goal? Right. So, um... So I think health is much more encompassing than the physical aspects of it. And I think that's some of what uh, yoga allows us to approach. So what would health, here's a fun question. Uh-oh. So how would you define health? Totally putting you on the spot with this one. Um, I think this might be a quote from someone. Uh, it's when what you think, what you do, what is it? What you think, what you do. I think a state of mental, emotional, and physical health and sense of well-being. Okay. And being in relationship with um, your community and the people that surround you. That's elegant. Maybe. I mean, that's a lot more than saying not diabetes, obviously. Yes, exactly. So health not as an absence of disease. So when you go into a doctor's office, it's not you don't gain health by being in the doctor's office. Health is what you do outside of the doctor's office. It's what you live. I like that. So, let me see if I can do this right. I'm gonna borrow doc uh, Dr. James's words to close off the episode. My understanding from what you said is between the manipulation to help figure out the problem and the yoga to actualize what's happening in the office in the real world, right? Mm -hmm. You can help our patient, they can find it, they can fix it, and then they can leave it alone. I like that possibility, yeah. Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N, Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Rollin' Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. 
By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, Saj Survey, Podcast Producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This blog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.